Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't. I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. Well, I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 46, recorded on September 13th, 2023. For this episode, we will be reviewing Linux Lite 4.4 and 4.6, Rhino Linux 2023.1, and Lubuntu 22.04.3 LTS. <music> Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. My wife finally unburied her new Lenovo T590 ThinkPad, and I updated and upgraded it to Linux Mint 21.2. I even managed to get its power cord plugged in so she can start using it instead of the aging System76 Kudu 3, except that so far she continues to use the Kudu. We also spend a weekend at my friend Larry Kirby's house in South Carolina, singing my lungs out with three other performers, and a room of listeners and lots of food. We also had some car trouble coming back from there, which cost a lot of money to fix. And I'm back to teaching. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale? I had an odd issue with my router and cable modem while away at work. Something damaged the WAN 1 Ethernet port on my router and the Ethernet port on my cable modem. After calling Spectrum's technical support, it was decided to replace my modem. I was able to directly connect a laptop to the modem, which was successful. Luckily, my Ubiquiti Unify Security Gateway, also known as my router, has a WAN 2 port, which is disabled by default. I disabled the WAN 1 port and enabled the WAN 2 port. I was able to get my network online again, though only at 100 megabit, which is why the cable modem was replaced. Once replaced, I was getting about 368 megabits down out of the 300 I pay for. I've been considering upgrading to the 500. I've been noticing that the top one and a half inches or three centimeters of my monitor randomly blinking and flashing. I was thinking it could be the settings I was using in my PyCom compositor. None of the suggestions I found online were helping, so I disabled PyCom. I determined it wasn't the cause. I tried a spare DisplayPort cable that I found in my mess of a closet, which I was surprised that I could. (laughs) I really need to go through that. And it wasn't the uh, cause either. After discussing this with a friend, we both agreed to try another card since it was the less expensive option. Luckily, while looking at the Micro Center website, 
I found a great deal on an ASRock RX 6600 8GB card. It was well below what I wanted to spend and was $60 less than other RX 6600 cards. I needed something to support my native monitor resolution of 5120 by 1440 After installing the RX 6600, I used the computer for the remainder of the week and weekend with no flashing. I can test the NVIDIA card's DVI port using my two other monitors. They only have VGA and DVI. My NVIDIA GTX 1650 only had one display port and one DVI. So the card may be usable on DVI for one of my headless servers. And it's really kind of funny comparing this old card to the current cards. It is so small <laughs> in comparison. It is. Some of the newer cards are like triple slot, which sounds unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I saw a 4090 on display and some other ones at the Micro Center. Good grief. There's computer cases not this big. <laughs> Heavens. For some reason, Xorg's auto detection of my RX 6600 wasn't working correctly. I haven't needed to edit the video section of Xorg.conf for a couple of decades, at least, I'm thinking. The auto detection put entries for all four display ports with device IDs and addresses that were not correct, which oddly, it should only detect the ones that are active. And I only had one plugged in. Go figure. My friend and I searched for this and I tried a couple of suggestions. I also used LSPCI in the terminal to determine my card settings. I ended up removing what was saved in the xorg.conf configuration file for the driver and only put the name of the driver, which is called Radeon, and nothing else. And I believe it was lowercase, but I can't remember. I'm thinking it was either uppercase or lowercase. I'm not even sure if the case really mattered. But anyways, to my surprise, XORG launched and my desktop appeared. Oddly, my wallpaper wasn't shown, which required me to set it again. No big deal. I don't know if there are some settings I'm missing, but at least it worked the remainder of the week with no issues. I'm curious what the configuration would show after a fresh install, but that takes effort and I had no interest in that. <laughs> it works. <laughs> if I was 10, 15 years younger, I would have. I thought about what I could use my Lenovo Think Center M700 Tiny for. It is an i360-100T with two cores and four threads and 8 gigabytes of DDR4-2400 memory. I upgraded it from 4 to 8. I installed a crucial MX500 250GB SSD I had never used. I actually found two of them. They were for a project that never materialized, and they just got shuffled off. I decided to use it for my Pi Hole and my Ubiquiti Unify controller. Now I could repurpose my ASRock J3455B-ITX for my future PFSense router. I intended on using Debian 12, except I ran into problems installing the Unify controller. This almost became a beautiful failures nominee. The controller required Java version 8 or newer and MongoDB 2.6, but version 3.6 is also supported. I was running the controller on Debian 11 with Java 8 
and MongoDB 2.6. Apparently Debian 12's packages are too recent. Go figure. I mean, those are words you'd never say. Debian? Really? Yeah. My friend was trying to install it at home at the same time I was. The main issue was getting a version of MongoDB that was compatible with the other system dependencies. We both gave up. He went back to Debian 11. I thought I would try Ubuntu Server 22.04. I tried Ubuntu Server when it was first released in 2010. So it was time for another look. I'm happy with it so far. I almost gave up on it due to issues with MongoDB. It was an interesting conundrum. MongoDB wasn't in the Ubuntu repos. You download it from the MongoDB website or enable their apt repository. The only version of MongoDB that is supported started at version 6 for Ubuntu Server 22.04. According to MongoDB's website, Unify wouldn't install with anything newer than 3.6. I tried using the repo for 3.6, but it complained that my libssl was too new. This was one of the errors I had on Debian 12. So my friend and I were searching for a solution. I happened to find an independent blog that was posted in March of 2023. Considering how recent it was, I had high hopes of it working. They instructed me to download the uh, deb file for the libssl version 1.1 with wget directly from Ubuntu. I added the repo from MongoDB for the uh, 2.6 branch. I followed the remaining instructions thinking that reverting the libssl version was going to break something else. To my surprise, everything was installed and worked. Now that I knew I had the correct combination of package versions, I reinstalled Ubuntu Server 2204 and followed the blog's instructions. Everything is installed and works. I think this could have worked for Debian 12, but I can't say for certain. That because of the lineage with Ubuntu and uh, Debian. My friend and I agree that Ubiquity either needs to update its controller package. We are of the conspiracy opinion that they want you to buy one of their cloud keys, a PoE-powered ARM computer in the shape of a USB stick, or their dream machines, a unified controller and security gateway in one device. And those, you know... I'm not sure what the cloud key costs, but the Dream Machines start at three hundred dollars. Wow! Yeah, I like free and <laughs> <laughs> running on my computer. Though I would like a Dream Machine. It looks very cool. The, the Dream Machine Pro because it would fit nicely in my rack. We don't usually talk about your rack day. I know you need to stop <laughs> staring at it. It's not polite. Uh. <laughs> I then installed Pihole, which was very easy. It was. So simple. It's nice to have a win. <laughs> I chose to use the script option that performed the installation. There is several options. In non-computer related news, I helped the same friend again with more plumbing issues. His downstairs bathroom sink was draining slowly. That meant it was in the neck where the uh, stopper or further down in the uh, pipe bend where it prevented sanitary gas from coming up from the drain if it was ever dry. It's one of those things that they haven't changed ever since they invented plumbing. I first disconnected the drain stopper from the lifting mechanism and removed the stopper. It was a good guess because I found the blockage. Once removed, 
and everything reassembled, twice I might add, as I installed the stopper backwards. It looked the same. I don't know what the difference was. But it was happy the uh, second time. It was another fun repair laying on my back and on my side watching an instructional YouTube video on my phone. The remainder of my time was spent watching TV, video calls with friends, and recovering from a nasty left ear infection. And I do want to do a PSA. If you're not feeling well and you just don't know what's wrong, go to the medical center or the doctor. Don't be stubborn like us and just tough it out because I've got so much more energy now. It's amazing. So with that disappointment, how about you, Eric? It's funny you mentioned laying on your back watching an instructional YouTube video. I, I think any relatively handy person can find just about anything they need on YouTube. I've fixed so many things. <laughs> Thank goodness. What a, what a great resource, that's for sure. Yeah, I fixed the shower head using YouTube. I fixed my car several times. Um, yeah, lo lots of things. Uh, home appliances, <laughs> you name it. All right. I spent a good bit of my month recovering from surgery quite successfully, I must say. It's all gone according to plan, which is a huge relief. Not being in constant pain is wonderful, believe it or not. <laughs> Beyond that, I took part in several podcasts. I was on episode 420 of the Mintcast and episode 16 of Linux OTC. I have also been participating in the Linux Lugcast as well as Linux Saloon Streams. It's been all Linux and open source all the time, and I'm really enjoying it, especially getting the chance to interact with so many smart people. I always seem to learn something new, and uh, having free access to that information, it's my payoff for joining in and participating. Well, but you also get a chance to interact with me. That's true, and that's why I'm here, Moss. You, you called me out. You figured it out. <laughs> All right, let's move on to updates where we discuss what we've learned about the distros we've already reviewed. Before I get started, two or three listeners pointed out to me that BlendOS does not use the Calamaris installer. It uses the Jade installer borrowed from Crystal Linux. This will come up again in the feedback session. Bodhi 7.0.0 was finally released in 64-bit regular HWE and S76 packages, with the app pack and 32-bit versions to come shortly. Open Mandriva Rome had a new version come out. Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 has released a beta version. I really look forward to this, as the progress of Debian as a user's distro means I might be able to run LMDE as my primary distro. Dale? Debian and Slackware are celebrating their 30th anniversary a couple months apart. So as we do with our presidents in this country, we're going to celebrate it at the same time. Gregolith has released version 3 of their i3 window manager-based distro. They added support for Ubuntu 23.10 and Debian 12 Bookworm, an alpha release of a Wayland session based on the Sway compositor, the PyCom compositor is installed by default on the XORG sessions. A link to the announcement will be in the show notes. Pardis has released version 23 of their XFCE and GNOME editions. It is codename... A. Yildiz? Yeah, I, I was thinking... I, A. I. Yildiz? I don't speak Turkish. Yeah, it's definitely Yildiz, but yeah, it's, it's one of them. Yeah, close. We gave it an attempt which means crescent and star, one of Turkey's national symbols. I will mention some of the updates. Kernel 6.1, Firefox 
ESR and LibreOffice 7.4. Listener Biku emailed me a upgrade script supported by Pardis. The command will be in the show notes. I tried it and was successful. It took a couple hours or so to finish. And uh, make sure you got a good Wi-Fi signal you're plugged in because I have a friend that was trying to upgrade hers and it failed two or three times. So I'm not sure if their servers are overloaded or if she was having Wi-Fi issues. But it was still in the download phase, so it should recover. And uh, with that, we're going to move on to Eric. So I'm still sort of the newbie here, and uh, I don't have a ton of distros under my belt. So I just wanted to give an update on running Linux Mint. I had upgraded to 21.2, and I'm still using it as the main distro on my laptop. It's kind of the stable workhorse that I could rely on to sort of get out of my way and just let me get things done, you know, no drama. Uh, there are some things that I wouldn't mind changing, like having a newer kernel and using Pipewire, but those don't significantly detract uh, anything from like day-to-day use. So it's going to stay until I find something that's as reliable and comfortable for me to use. Okay, moving to beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month... My failure this month was Rhino Linux. I tried to install it and it went all the way through and then choked on installing Grub. This does not happen much since I started using the T540P as a single boot machine. Thankfully, it seems Eric may have gotten it to work. I also attempted to install OpenMandriva Roam on my desktop, but it did not complete installation. Dale? My failure was updating PC Linux OS. It had been a couple months since I updated it. This is a rolling release, though previous gaps and updates were successful. I have a habit of running the update a second time to make sure everything is updated. I guess that's just because of my years of using apt, and apt has the auto-remove function. So, I have it. I noticed that apt was showing a fatal exception. It wouldn't even run. I mean, as soon as you type in apt, fatal exception. I tried reverting to the previous version, and the fatal exception went away. Then it complained about dependency it was needing, so I installed it. That's when it all went pear-shaped. apt would run, but had many errors and refused to complete the command. It reported that duplicate dependencies were installed, and one needed to be removed. Well, long story short, I could not get either one to uninstall. Is it hosed or are you able to, you're going to try to fix it or you're just kind of like, oh, well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. My original thing on here when I wrote it Mm. was probably as long as your review of Rhino (laughs) 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 of what I tried. I tried a couple hours trying things and no. Just didn't work out. Well, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It just got more pear shaped and it was like on, uh, on a slip and slide that was iced over. Yeah. Well, you gave us a shot. I guess that's all you could ask for, right? So uh, I had something weird with my uh, desktop PC. I use it remotely most of the time. I sit elsewhere in the house with my laptop and kind of use it as a process system or, you know, whatever I happen to need it for, just connect remotely. And the last few weeks, it would just stop responding. And I'd have to get up and, I mean, as terrible as that sounds, I'd have to get get up and come and reboot it. And uh wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, I had had Linux Mint on it for a, quite a while and had no issues. And of course, since it wasn't broken, I decided to fix it and um, decided I wanted to try Arch since it had been a while. And I uh, went with Reborn OS. 
I'd been wanting to try it anyway, and so went with that. And it just didn't go well for for a number of reasons. I'm really not going to get into here because, like Dale just said, I'd <laughs> have a, many more paragraphs to go through. So suffice to say, it just didn't work. So I switched. Well, so before this, I was I was going to switch, but I didn't have time to before I recorded Mintcast. And actually, in the middle of recording Mintcast, about an hour in, it locked up completely on me. And I thought, oh my goodness, I just lost all that audio. But fortunately, when I rebooted, uh, Audacity recovered the file. So uh, in case you're wondering, Audacity actually does have a pretty good backup. I was there. Yeah. I'm a witness. <laughs> yeah, it was scary. But after that near fiasco, I thought it was a good idea to, to get that off and try something else. I was just having one of those days where I thought, I want to get it done in 15 minutes and get on with my life. And so I thought, I'll use Ubuntu. I've never had problems with it. I'm just going to install it and be done with it. I already had it, had it downloaded on a USB key and uh, it was the 2304 release, which I don't mind running the most current release. But if you remember, 2304 came with a new installer. This was the first uh, release with the Subwicket, Subiquity? Subiquity installer. And, um, and it kept crashing on me. Like I would get through most of the stuff, you know, put in my name and password, like all the way towards the end, click next, and it would just literally disappear. And I did it two or three times thinking, okay, maybe I'm just being dumb here and clicking the wrong thing. And nope, kept going away. So I got a new copy of the ISO thinking, well, maybe they updated something and it's more reliable. Nope, same exact thing. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what is going on here? So they also released a copy of the ISO with the legacy the Ubiquity installer. And so I grabbed a copy of that. Mind you, I wanted this to take 15 minutes and here I am like an, at least an hour in at this point. And so I tried the legacy install and it did actually get to the end of the installation, but then it wouldn't boot. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on with Ubuntu right now. It just wasn't working for me. So I decided to switch to Manjaro Cinnamon. I wanted to use Cinnamon anyway, actually. So right now it's running. It hasn't locked up on me. Seems to be doing okay. And we'll just have to wait and see how it does. And honestly, if Manjaro doesn't work, I'm not sure. I guess I would just go back to Mint. <laughs> So, anyway, let's move on to the reviews. All right. This month I'm reviewing Linux Lite 4.4 and there was an upgrade to 4.6 in the offing. This little gem has been sitting around unnoticed for some time now, although we have reviewed it in the past. Version 4.4 is the first version to use the Ubuntu 22.04 LTS code base. I've had some travails with this, largely having to do with my continuing hate-hate relationship with XSCE Desktop. My hardware, I used my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P, you're getting tired of hearing this, I'm sure. This computer has a 4th generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ, 16 gigs of RAM, and a 512 gig silicon power SSD with both Intel HD Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics. I installed it using the entire disk. Installation ease and issues, Linux Lite uses the old familiar Ubuntu installer. Everything went as expected, until I noticed that some packages being installed were snaps. If you like snaps, fine, but if you don't, you at least like to be given the option. Post-installation hardware facts and issues, I tried to get everything installed, some things did not appear to have installed. XSCE put the icons where it willed, as usual, and while moving them around other proper location on the taskbar, it is just too bleeding easy to wipe out the entire launcher. 
I did that a few times, even going to do a complete reinstallation once. I looked stuff up on how to fix it, then I found a comment that rebooting fixes it and found that was correct. It's a lot harder to reboot without a launcher, but I accidentally found that right-clicking on the desktop gives me some options, including opening the terminal, which then allows me to reboot. Most new users would have given up a long time before I did, and most don't even know the reboot command runs fine in terminal. I only learned it myself a couple years ago, and I've been using Linux something Linux since 2002. Also, I have noted that in many versions of Debian, you have to do sudo reboot. Anyhow, I added some things via Flatpak, including Telegram and Discord, but I couldn't find Discord in the menus. Finally, I noticed it was there, labeled Internet Messenger, and I wouldn't have seen it were it not for them using the standard Discord icon. I'm not used to looking to match icons in a menu, which is supposed to be text-based. They do that with browsers, too. I installed three other browsers, the default Chrome official, and uninstalled Chrome, only to find out that all browsers are listed in the menu as Internet Browser. Not Firefox, not Vivaldi, not Chromium. This type of thing makes a simple OS into a headache until you figure it out, and I'm not sure many would have stuck around this long. Of course, if you know XFCE and love it, you won't even notice the issue, but nothing works the same in XFCE as it does in other desktops. Plasma has its strangenesses, but nothing like this. I have run updates a few times. The update manager is quite simple to use. However, the bar graphic which runs during the installation of software gives you no hint of how long it will take. Also, when your update is complete, you are prompted to decide whether you want to see the installation logs. I thought that was a good thing to be offering you. Uh, More information is better than less information. On September 6th, I looked to see if I had the latest version. You have no idea how hard it was to find any discussion on upgrading from one version to another, 6.4 to 6.6 in this case. I searched for at least 15 minutes. Finally, I hit Menu and typed Upgrade to find that Linux Lite has a completely different app for upgrading as for updating. The upgrade went smoothly and I have rebooted. It looks and sounds the same, but I'm sure there was a reason for the new release. Maybe I should try reading something. If you like system sounds, the boot sound and some completion sounds will either please you or irritate you. I think they're cool, but I wonder what I would think after hearing them every day for a year. You can turn them off. Ease of use. There is nothing to using this that you can't figure out even without help. It's a simple version of Ubuntu with XFCE desktop. Unless, like me, you have a hate-hate relationship with XFCE desktop and things are looking weird. As I said, their labeling practices were not the most open and above board. Memory and disk use. When I open Terminal, I am welcomed by the following. Welcome to Linux Lite 6.4 Zyvala. Friday, 25th August 2023, 2146.07. Memory usage 733-15677MB, 4.68%. Disk usage 31-468GB, 7%. Support HTTPS slash colon slash slash www.linuxliteos.com slash forums. Right-click, open link. All that is printed out right when you open the terminal. And I further would comment, wait till you see what happens when you type NeoFetch. I'm not going to tell you, you've got to go try it. Speaking of which, after the upgrade to 6.6, the RAM in use upon reboot was 771, a slight uptick, about the same as Linux Mint Mate for me, which sort of kills the lightweight label, but it's not nearly as heavy as Ubuntu with GNOME. Ease of finding help. First off, it's Ubuntu based with XFCE. If you can't find help for that, you're not even trying. Second off, the forums are so available, they are advertised every time you open the terminal. This distro has been around for quite a while, and while it's not exactly taking over the world, neither is it apparently going away anytime soon. 
plays nice with others, Linux Lite should coexist peacefully with Windows or nearly any other Ubuntu or Debian-based distro. Stability, it's every bit as stable as the Ubuntu 2204 it's based on, and that's pretty good. Similar distros to check out, MX Linux, Xubuntu, Zorin OS Lite, and many, many others. My ratings. Ease of installation for a new user is 8 out of 10. For an experienced user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help community web. I did make this 10 out of 10, but I did have a whole lot of trouble finding the instructions for doing the upgrade. I guess I'm going to change that to an 8. Ease of use, 6 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 8 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. My overall rating is 9 out of 10. For my final comments, if you like Ubuntu Core distros and you like XFCE desktop and you don't mind flat graphics, then you can't go wrong trying Linux Lite. I don't see anything terribly compelling about this distro, nor do I find any reason not to use it. It will run on most any equipment built in the last 12 years and will, for the most part, stay out of your way. Let's move along to Dale. Well, this episode, I'm reviewing Lubuntu 22.04.3 LTS. Lubuntu is one of Canonical's official spins. It uses the LXQT desktop and the Openbox window manager. The name is a combination of LXQT and Ubuntu. It has a 13-year history, so I will be brief. Ubuntu started as an optional desktop package in Ubuntu 8.10 on the 30th of October 2008. The first standalone version was based on Ubuntu 10.04, released on the 2nd of May 2010. On the 13th of October 2011, the first official version was released based on Ubuntu 11.10, also designated an official spin. Ubuntu had its first LTS release using 14.04 on the 17th of April, 2014. Since its inception, it has used the LXDE desktop and the Openbox window manager. LXDE used the GTK2 toolkit. Ubuntu replaced LXDE with LXQT in the Ubuntu 18.10 release on the 18th of October 2018. This was due to the original developer of LXDE not liking the changes in GTK3 and so ported LXDE to the QT framework. LXQT was released on the 3rd of July 2013. Lubuntu 22.04.3 is using version 0.17.0 based on QT 5.15.3 it's kind of interesting. If Canonical wouldn't have made the changes they made, and GNOME didn't make the changes they made, we have never had LXQT, because he would have been happy continuing to develop LXD. <laughs> and now we're waiting to see what happens when they have to adopt QT6. Oh, yeah. Yep. Fun times. So my hardware, well, I resurrected my, uh, my ThinkPad. So... The laptop I used is my Lenovo ThinkPad T460. It has an Intel dual-core i5-6200U, 2.8 GHz CPU, a 14-inch display using Intel HD Graphics 520, 16GB of RAM, and a 500GB Samsung H60 EVO SSD. Installation Ease and Issues 
The ISO booted to a simple text grub boot screen. The icon to launch the installer was on the desktop. They are using Calamaris, which was the uh, regular installation steps that, if you've been through it, it's all the same. I chose to replace the partition with Lubuntu. It was fairly quick installation at around five minutes. It was a lot faster than, than some. I didn't connect to my hotspot until after it was installed. The installation could have taken longer if uh, there were any updates to a download during the installation. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. The boot splash screen had a hummingbird, which is their chosen logo. The wallpaper was a blue jellyfish in the center of the screen. I elected to use one of the other images, which was a, a suspension bridge in the background and some multi-level tourist boats in the foreground. It was a nice nighttime cityscape image. The blue in the jellyfish was just too bright for my liking. It was like, oh, my eyes! Lubuntu uses the Openbox window manager with some LXQT applications. There were icons on the desktop for the computer that opens PCMAN-FM in the root folder, the user home folder, the network, and the trash or rubbish bin. The bottom panel had an application menu accessible via pressing the super key. There were numbers 1 through 4 for the virtual desktops. Following that was a pinned PCMAN-FM and a show desktop widget. The system tray had a removable media widget, volume control, clipboard, battery, the uh, network manager widget, and the time and date. Here are a few of the pre-installed applications. PCMAN-FM, it's a file manager, a graphical one. Featherpad, it's a GUI text editor. LX Image, it's a uh, image viewer, GUI. Scanlight, it's a document scanning application. LibreOffice Community Edition 7.3.7.2. Transmission QT, it's a BitTorrent client. And VLC, which is a uh, video player. The terminal is QT Terminal from the LXQT project. They use the KDE Partition Manager. For GUI package management, there is Discover, and I'm going to pronounce this Muon. Probably Muon, but okay. Muon, okay. Tomato, tomato. Let's have lunch. Both from the uh, KDE project. Firefox is 116.03 via Snap, which is the regular release. It's not a ESR. Compton and PyCom are installed for compositing, but not enabled by default. It can be enabled by clicking a checkbox in the Preferences, LXQT Settings, then Session Settings. Optionally, you can copy the Compton.desktop file from the slash Etsy slash XDG slash auto start to slash x slash etc slash xdg slash xdg dash lubuntu dash auto start. One thing I needed to do after logging in the first time was to slow down the mouse. After that, I wanted to connect to my Wi-Fi hotspot. I clicked on the NM tray, which is short for network manager, a QT applet for as I said, Network Manager, to uh, find my hotspot. I clicked on it, and it didn't open the connection dialog. Instead, it moved it from the available to the recently used. I couldn't right-click on it. 
I use the advanced networking configuration from the preference menu. Once configured, I could right-click on the Network Manager applet to manage the settings. More on this a little later. Even though screensavers are not necessary these days, it was nice to see them on the Ubuntu. I liked the flurry. It was like ribbons of plasma gas twisting around. I haven't used Synapse in quite a while. Considering this is a Ubuntu base, it was the perfect time to try them again. Since Firefox was already a snap and installed by default, I installed Telegram and Signal Messenger as a snap. I have been happy with their performance. Signal and Telegram take about one to two seconds to open while Firefox takes about two seconds. I find this acceptable compared to the launch times in the past years. One thing I did like was the Signal Messenger snap. It appeared in the system tray without having to modify the .desktop file. That is a common thing I need to do when using the uh, Flatpak packaged of uh, Signal. I checked for updates and 25 updates were available. I didn't have an update notification for them. I used Discover to install the updates. I also searched for a couple of applications. This was the test to see if the infamous spinning ball reporting I'm working on it would continue long after showing the uh, search results. I'm happy to see that it would disappear once I was done searching. It was very quick to download the updates. It supported multiple downloads. I opened Muon, and it appears to look like a Qt version of Synaptic. I noticed it had some trouble finding some packages that Discover was able to find. When I opened Firefox to set it up for use, I signed in to my Firefox account. Once it synchronized my extensions and settings, I signed in to Grammarly and Bitwarden. While typing in these uh, show notes, I noticed some uh, screen tearing while scrolling. I disabled the smooth scrolling in the settings and the screen tearing went away. After consulting about this issue of Dan Simmons from the Lubuntu team, he suggested using PyCom instead of Compton. I edited the Compton.desktop file to execute uh, PyCom instead of Compton. Unfortunately, it wouldn't load. I opened the terminal to type PS space AUX space the pipe symbol space grep space dash I PyCom and saw it was indeed not running. I mainly tried to run it and saw it didn't like the syntax from the config file that uh, Compton was using. One behavior I noticed is when you plug in a USB device, it will prompt you if you want to open the file manager. This is a feature people take for granted when using a full desktop environment. When using a window manager, some distros don't install the package that automates this feature. There is also a USB slash removable media manager in the system tray to eject them. This is in addition to the ejection option in PCMAN-FM. I turned on the laptop after a couple of days, and upon logging in, I had an update notification. It read, There are upgrades available. Do you want to do a system upgrade? This will mean packages could be upgraded, installed, or removed. Ten are security upgrades. Below that was a clickable overflow list of packages. There were a cancel and apply buttons at the bottom of the window. Once they were downloaded and installed, it reported that it was finished and a reboot is required. 
Clicking the close button closed the window as expected. While I was using the laptop, a pop-up notification appeared. It was from the Snap Update service. The message read, Telegram-Desktop. Pending update of Telegram-Desktop. Snap. Close the app to update now. 13 days left. The next time I signed into Lubuntu, I had a notification stating that Telegram-Desktop. Snap has been refreshed, now available to launch. This is new to me as I haven't used snaps in a few years. I thought that was kind of a nice notification. Under Preferences, LXQT Settings, are all of the system configurations. Anything you want to change is most likely available in these menus. I particularly liked the shortcut keys, window effects, it's the uh, compositor settings, and the session settings. Session settings is very useful. You can start and stop the LXQT modules, add remove applications from the auto start menu, and change the location to the folders in the home folders. So you can have your pictures point to a different folder if you want, and the others. I did experience an issue with the power management app. When using the enable backlight change under the idle settings, when on battery, after the idle time has expired, the screen would dim and then report that power management has crashed too many times and will be disabled until you log in again. There is a checkbox on battery discharging that I unchecked while still connected to AC power. It would crash like it did on battery power. When the checkbox wasn't checked, the screen never dimmed and the error never appeared. I reported this behavior to Dan Simmons of the Lubutu team. I do want to mention that when I was connected to my home Wi-Fi, the Network Manager applet for Network Manager worked like it should. I was able to select my AP's name and enter the passphrase. So my previous issue must have been a glitch for whatever reason. I did take a look at Lubuntu 23.04. The power management issue was resolved. They've replaced Compton with PyCom for screen compositing. The GUI configuration utility they used is absent in 23.04, probably due to the compatibility issues with the new syntax PyCom uses. I did find one on GitHub that uses Qt, which would be a good fit. I will have a link in the review in case anyone wants to try it. I haven't had a chance to uh, try it since arriving home. I didn't have any issues with the NM applet for Network Manager. I dual booted it with 22.04.3.lts. The grub menu listed it as Lubuntu 22.04.3.lts and 23.04 as such. That is a nice touch that other distros should implement. Overall, my brief look at 23.04 is a nice upgrade over 22.04.3. Many more improvements, though, this is not a 23.04 review. I do want to mention. If you did want to use PyCom on 22.04.3, all you have to do is just edit the config file and change the uh, syntax to what PyCom is expecting. Ease of use. Despite a few issues, I really enjoyed my experience using Lubuntu. It is a very usable desktop and good on memory. Even while using Firefox, as I write this with four tabs open in Telegram, it is using 2.2 gigabytes. This is after opening and closing a couple of tabs. 
along with some terminal windows over the past few hours. I would say this is close to the same experience you would have using Plasma without the complexity, and I would add a lot more memory usage, even though Plasma is a lot lighter than it has in the past. Memory and disk use. 11 gigabytes of space used on the SSD, which I think that's pretty moderate. 436 megabytes to 455 megabytes of memory used was reported by Free-HM using Eric's looping script, which I wanted to use last time, but I forgot. That was a pretty... Uh, so we have to be getting loopy these days? Yes. Yeah, loops and things. And uh, what's the L? Fruit, fruit loops, too. Got to have the fruit loops. They're magically delicious. Oops, wrong cereal. Yeah, the, the loops and tings was a song back when I was in the clubbing when I was in school. But any case, ease of finding help. Help is available from the hashtag or pound symbol Lubuntu on Libera.chat, IRC network. Their matrix is bridged to their IRC channel, Telegram, mailing list, and their forums using Discourse. Additionally, you can find support in the canonical official support site, Ask Ubuntu. Ubuntu has a manual available from their website. There's, I have a link in the show notes, but it's also available prominently on their um, main page. They have great information on how to change system settings and instructions on installed applications. I want to thank Dan Simmons of the Ubuntu team for all of his assistance. Plays nice with others. Ubuntu did identify the PC Linux OS installation and added it to the Grub menu. Ubuntu was able to take control of Grub. I was surprised that the drive and partition were mentioned next to the PC Linux OS Grub entry. You don't see that displayed often with other distros. I really do think that is a nice touch because in other Ubuntu distros, you'll have, like if you're dual booting two or three of them, your grub menu will say, do you want to boot Ubuntu, Ubuntu, or Ubuntu? And you spend the next five minutes rebooting until you find the one that you want to use. <laughs> that is really annoying. I, I've complained about that for years, and I don't think they're ever going to change it. Yeah, I just wish they would take some notes from their spins, because a lot of their spins have got some good ideas in, in uh, my findings. So the uh, stability, I didn't have any. Similar distros to check out. Um, um, you didn't have any stability or you didn't have any issues with stability? <laughs> well, I think with my ear problem that I had, I think I had some stability issues coming into it. But <laughs> now that that's corrected, I don't think I have any balance issues. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some similar distros for you all to check out. Fedora and their LXQT spin. And Gecko LXQT rolling and static based on Open uh, SUSE. I would also include Open Mandriva has an LXQT spin. Yeah, you'd mentioned that to me in Telegram, but I forgot to add it. Yep. All right, let's go on to the ratings. Ease of installation for the new user, 8 out of 10. Partitioning still has its issues. Experience user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 9 out of 10. Ease of finding help for the community and web, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others, that is a full 10 out of 10. And the stability, 10 out of 10. And my overall rating is 9 out of 10. And my final comments. 
I really enjoyed my time using Lubuntu. I would have no issue suggesting this to a person needing a low-resource distro. I would even say that the functionality is on par with desktop environments, in my opinion. I was content with the use of the Snap packages overall. The fact that I didn't install and configure Flatpaks is uh, evident of that. So, good job to the Lubuntu team. Sounds like they did a good job of getting LXQT all the way up to full status. I used it in the past when it wasn't up to par. Yes, I liked how they enabled the uh, super key because uh, that was something that you couldn't do before, which for us, those of us that like that functionality, that was a nice add. So if there's nothing else, we can uh, move on to Eric's review. All right. So I decided to take a look at Rhino Linux 2023.1. And according to their website, Rhino Linux reinvents the Ubuntu experience as a rolling release distribution built on a stable desktop environment. Packstall is at the very heart of the distribution, providing essential packages such as the Linux kernel, Firefox, and distinctive Rhino Linux applications and theming. We use SANE defaults. The XFC desktop environment is used for its stable and rock-solid base. Packstall, our package manager of choice, will always provide the latest software, even those unavailable in the Ubuntu repositories. And our custom XFCE configuration provides a unique and modern experience so that you can begin using your computer immediately. That's from the introduction on their website. And I'm going to read an excerpt from their first blog post that is available on the website, published on October 16, 2022. I don't normally do this, but it's a little long, but it, it gives a like exact description of what the origin is and why they're doing what they're doing. And I just, in terms of if you've never heard of it, I think it's helpful for folks to understand where it came from. So, from Moving Forward with Rolling Rhino Remix, written by the founder of Rhino Linux, http.llamas, that's the name. For context, his personal version was named Rolling Rhino Remix. So you're going to hear that referred to in here. And that's what has become now Rhino Linux. So I'm quoting, Over time, Rolling Rhino Remix evolved and changed drastically under the hood. However, I am not the same programmer I was then. Rolling Rhino Remix was, honestly, made with little effort and is still held together by scripts that keep the operating system running. It was a proof of concept, and the fact that people utilized it as a daily driver astounded me. It was more stable than I anticipated, thankfully. Rolling Rhino Remix kept adding more and more utilities until simply it was no longer just a rolling flavor of Ubuntu. Over time, the current development model of Rolling Rhino Remix had become untenable. It really is a passion project with code that is not mature. I made it for fun, but it became too big too quickly, and unfortunately the immature code that made the distribution is still present today. I have made teasers about what the team is working on next, and it is not a complete departure from our original aim, which to, was to provide a rolling release version of Ubuntu. I would like to introduce Rhino Linux, the official successor to Rolling Rhino Remix. This is a large undertaking that completely overhauls the fundamentals of Rolling Rhino Remix, and two new core developers have been added to the development team to help flesh this idea out. Rhino Linux will be an Ubuntu-based rolling release operating system with Ubuntu, Packstall and XFCE is the core of the distribution. Our users may be familiar with Packstall itself and how it's useful it is as an AUR-like package manager for Ubuntu. It is extremely extensible 
we have adopted our own Paxstall repository specifically for Rhino Linux, which is headed by our deputy project lead and the founder of Paxstall, Plasma. Plasma? I guess that's their name, Plasma. Core packages for the distribution such as XFCE and our dot files, the Linux kernel, our Plymouth boot splash, and the Firefox web browser will be installed via Paxstall. We have chosen a slightly customized version of XFCE as our desktop environment of choice due to its renowned stability and speed. Ubuntu as a rolling release is still at the very core of our concept. Rhino Linux is not a departure from rolling Rhino Remix, but rather reimagines it as the more stable, more mature distribution it should have shipped as originally. That's the end of the quote. So that's why I wanted to read it. So it sort of gives you an idea of he had started rolling Rhino Remix as a personal project. And when enough people started using it, uh, he felt like it wasn't really stable enough for people to be using. And given the interest, decided to reimagine it as Rhino Linux. So there are a number of intriguing ideas and concepts contained in Rhino Linux. The fact that it's a rolling release based on Ubuntu kind of sounds like an oxymoron, considering that Ubuntu has always been a fixed release distribution. And this is done by using the development repositories as a base, which are generally always being populated with the latest versions of any given software package. While it's not entirely inaccurate to characterize Ubuntu's development repositories as rolling, if the definition is strictly that they feature up-to-date packages, the key difference is that rolling releases are intentionally built to be rolling. Using pre-release repositories containing incomplete combinations of packages and dependencies isn't really the same thing. To me, it feels like this setup is almost certainly going to break at some point. <laughs> and I don't think that there will be an easy way to fix it. Ubuntu isn't going to support Rhino users because they're using the development base. And unless the Rhino team is willing to maintain their own repositories and main manage packages themselves, I think they'd be stuck. I also don't think that it's a coincidence that they chose XFCE because I don't think they could use anything else since it changes too often. I mean, you think of GNOME and KDE Plasma, there are a lot of updates that are coming through that development repo uh, fast and furious leading up to a release. And I just have to think that that would be very difficult to manage as the base for the system. And maybe I'm missing something. These are situations that they've accounted for, but I really wasn't able to find anything specific on how they plan to mitigate that. So this is just kind of my gut sense on, on that. And I haven't used it long enough to figure out if this was actually going to be the case, but it just feels like it, <laughs> feels like it will be. So anyway, I have more information on package management that I'll cover later on. But for now, let's talk about the installation. Like Moss said, and you're probably sick of <laughs> hearing it at this point, this is the system I'm going to be using. Uh, so it's the main system I have, which is a Dell XPS 15 9570 laptop, which has an eighth generation Coffee Lake Intel i7 8750H, which is a six core 12 thread processor at 4.1 gigahertz. I upgraded the 32 gigs of DDR4 to 2666 RAM. I've got a 256 NVMe and a one terabyte SSD drive hybrid NVIDIA graphics with the GTX 1050 Ti Mobile and Intel Coffee Lake HGT2 UHD Graphics 630. So still a, a good machine. And as just a real quick aside, I decided to test Windows 11 on it. And it made me sad because it made that system feel slow and old. When I run Linux, it's not slow and old at all. So anyway, <laughs> not a dig at Windows. It just really surprised me because I wasn't expecting it. So Anyway, installation ease and issues. 
Booting into the live session, you are greeted with a highly themed version of the XFC desktop that is very purple. <laughs> uh, it certainly makes a statement and it's, it's quirky and fun and definitely recognizable, which I kind of think, you know, that's not a bad thing. The important part is that it all works like it's supposed to. It's XFC and, you know, if you have used it before, I think you'd feel pretty much right at home. There is an icon on the desktop to start the Calamari's installer. I can't imagine there are many people who have tried Linux that haven't seen Calamari, so I'm just going to skip the blow-by-blow -blow commentary and highlight the interesting bits. Calamari's often offers several options for swap, which would normally be no swap, swap without Hibernate, and swap with Hibernate. Rhino offers two options, no swap or swap to file. And I've seen this a few times, but it's not common, so that's why I thought I'd mention it. This is a completely standard Calamari's installation routine, which is to say familiar and functional. The entire process took almost exactly six minutes for me, which is to say it's pretty quick. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. After installing, rebooting, and logging in, I saw the desktop as it was on live boot, minus the desktop icon to install. There is no welcome or guidance to be had. According to the Rhino website, there is supposed to be a setup wizard. I checked their GitHub account and could see that there is an application named Rhino-Setup hosted there, but I couldn't find it on my installation. I opened a terminal and used RPK, which is the shorthand version of Rhino-Package, which is their custom package management tool that I'll get to, and installed Rhino-Setup-Bin. I launched it and went through the setup process, which includes a choice of dark and light themes, dark being the default, which package managers you'd like to use, which includes the ability to enable Flatpak along with Flatpak beta channel, snap, and app image. There's a screen to enable extra settings, which includes options for Nala, GitHub, CLI, and app port, of which Nala is selected by default. You are informed that these are optional settings and to leave them alone if you don't know what they do. <laughs> There's a message that says that. I do know what they do, but I figured I'd play along and, and just leave them as is. After this, the system is rebooted automatically and we're back to the desktop. So what now? One of the icons in the Plank dock is named Your System, so I, that seemed like a logical thing to try. This provides a summary of the hardware and software on the system, as well as a button entitled System Upgrade. I clicked it, the window refreshed, and showed an embedded terminal asking for my password. After entering it, I was told there were 397 packages to install, totaling 966 megabytes to download. I chose to continue and the update process began. There was a nicely formatted status area, complete with bright colors, that was showing the download process. What I was seeing is their homegrown package manager that I referred to earlier, called Rhino-Package, or PKG, which is intended to make it easy to find, install, and manage software from a number of sources. It is essentially a wrapper script for apt and packstall, and optionally includes support for Flatpak and Snap if you chose those as part of the setup process. There is no GUI package manager available, which doesn't really matter to me since I almost never use one, but I could see that being a real issue for people who aren't comfortable with the terminal or don't know any better. Anyway, the update process took about 15 minutes to complete. Rhino Package provides all the basic features you would expect, including searching, installing, removing, and updating packages. When searching and installing, it will return results from any of the sources it has access to. For example, when searching for Discord, you can potentially see results from Packstall, Flatpak, and Snap, depending on which ones are enabled again. You are provided with a numerical list to choose which you'd like to install. So 
you know, if there's five options, it's zero through four as the options available. Selecting the number that you'd like then calls the specific package manager to install, remove, you know, whatever function you're doing, etc. There's no way to tell where any given package is from using Rhino Package. So it requires using the individual package managers to search and see which packages each has installed. So you can see that they're installed, but you can't tell where they're from. So it's just a, a little difficult to kind of keep track of things. So Rhino Package helps to make managing packages from multiple sources a little easier, but it feels a little immature and messy. It's like a decent starting point, but I kind of hope that they take that and rework it and add in some more detail to make it easier to understand what things came from where. Quoting the website, Packstall is at the very heart of the distribution, providing essential packages such as the Linux kernel, Firefox, and distinctive Rhino Linux applications and theming. According to their GitHub project page, Packstall is the AUR Ubuntu wishes it had. It takes the concept of the AUR and puts a spin on it, making it easier to install programs without scouring GitHub repos and the likes. It is absolutely an intriguing concept, but after having used it for some time, I have some reservations about how it works in practice, especially when compared to the AUR. Unlike the AUR, there's very little information available about when something was last updated, package version, no way to comment on the packages to report errors, flag things out of date, and so on. These features are what make the AUR successful and provide a reasonable amount of confidence that something has been well tested and is being properly maintained. Because the AUR can be a bit of a, you know, there's no real support and you kind of have to make sure you do a little due diligence. So they give you the ability to do that, whereas it's a little more difficult here. It appears as though the majority of this stuff that you would normally see on the AUR is handled on GitHub as that's where the main project and individual pack scripts, which are the individual sort of scripts to install things, are stored. I can see that requests are being made to have packages added, as well as reporting issues and flagging things out of date. My problem with this is needing to dig through a general purpose development platform to find information. While it technically works, it's definitely not user-friendly. Another aspect of Packstall is that it's confusing having multiple options available with no real explanation of which to choose. Using the command line interface, you can search for a package. I'm going to keep using Discord as an example since I ended up having a larger issue with it, which I'll cover in a few minutes. If I search for Discord using Packstall-S Discord, I'm presented with four choices. Discord, Discord-Canary, Discord-Deb, and Discord-PTB-Deb. Which one of these am I supposed to select? If this were the AUR and I were using an AUR helper like Yay, for example, it would show me a description that might help me decide. If not, I could go to the AUR directly and review the options there. Each package has a page containing a wealth of information about when it was first published, when it was updated, what the dependencies are, and so on. More importantly, there is a comment section where it's easy to see if people are having problems. The equivalent pages on the Packstall website contain very little of this same information, and while linking to the pack script on GitHub, the page provides none of this information. I've provided a lot of background on package management, so let me move on to some actual examples. One of the first programs I always install is Discord. I normally use the Flatpak version, but because there were several options available via Packstall, I decided to try one of them instead. I attempted to install the plain Discord option and received an error. The following packages have unmet dependencies. Discord depends on libgconf-2-4, 
but it is not installable. Error failed to install the package. So I searched the various releases of Ubuntu and found that the, the package is present in all of them. So if you go to Ubuntu's website, there's a package search option. And I just used it to see which releases had that specific package available. And the answer is all of them, <laughs> except for the development one, which this is based on. I then tried to try the Discord dub package since that was available, right? Remember, there were a couple options to see if it was any different, but received the same message. I decided to check on the GitHub page for that pack script, and there wasn't really anything there of note to see. Uh, then I thought to log it as a bug under the main Packstall program's repository. Uh, the issue was acknowledged pretty quickly, and I give the maintainer full credit. It still didn't work. <laughs> it did install, but it actually, I couldn't find it in the menu, and it wouldn't launch from the command line. And something occurred to me very late in this review, and that was that there just had to be something wrong with this ISO, with my install. Like something was definitely not right. I mean, maybe. This is, you know, something that exists in their system and they just haven't run into it and someone hasn't tested it, but, uh, and I'm the first one to come across it, but I just I kind of have a feeling like <laughs> maybe something just is wrong. And then I realized that literally the yesterday, <laughs> I, as I was finishing testing and notes, that Rhino Linux 2023.2 had been released a few weeks ago on August 28th. And I downloaded a copy of it and ran some quick tests. And it appears that all of the issues that I had have been fixed, including the missing setup wizard and Discord would now install and run. And But because I've been running 2023.1, you know, I'm glad that they fixed the changes, but I had the problem <laughs> while I was running the, the older version. So, you know, I think most of my review is still valid with the package management and the difficulties I had, not the error part, and hopefully no one runs into that. But just the difficulty in sort of managing packages from different sources and, and that their tools feel a little on the, the green side at this point. So I'm not going to retest everything on the new version, and I'm, I'm happy with where I'm leaving this portion of the review. So I'm just going to move on to uh, ease of use. I think that XFC is easy enough to use for almost anyone and, and comes well configured. Not having a graphical package manager means that this is uh, squarely aimed at a more technical audience. And the language on the website, I think, kind of does that too. If you read through there, I don't think an, a new person is going to gravitate towards this distro. But if they did, I, I think they would probably have some issues. You know, I personally had numerous issues, <laughs> as I mentioned, and I, I still think this would be a difficult distro to, to maintain over time. Memory and disk use. I ran the while true do free HM uh, sleep 10 done, which that's <laughs> nothing magical about it. That's just some good Linux foo there. And after a few minutes, it sort of settled down. It started at 650 megabytes and leveled out at 638. So, you know, pretty reasonable memory usage. Not the lowest I've ever seen, but 600s is, is reasonable. I used DF H forward slash to show that a base installation used a very low 5.6 gigabytes of disk space. This is thanks to having a minimal complement of software included by default, essentially consisting of the basic system utilities and some you know, helper applications like an image viewer and media player and basically nothing else, <laughs> which I know a lot of people like. And again, if this is more of a technically minded distro, then that's probably appreciated by their user base. Ease of finding help. Rhino Linux has a presence on X or Twitter, Reddit, 
YouTube, Matrix, and Discord. I reached out to them on Discord to ask some questions and was warmly greeted, and my questions were answered politely. It seemed as though everybody was enthusiastically engaged and was having a good time with each other just chatting, uh, and I was really happy to see that that there was some uh, good camaraderie going on. So uh, kudos to them for representing themselves well and, um, and being so helpful. I do appreciate it. Plays nice with others. I didn't notice any issues with it having uh, picked up the installation of Linux Mint. Stability. Well, I didn't have any crashes or freezes or anything like that in the time that I used it. Uh, and I did have some updates, so um, it didn't break on me. There weren't any problems uh, running the updates, like I said, but I, I just, I have a, a very strong suspicion that especially during the kickoff of a new development cycle, there's just going to be a lot of churn in those packages in that base. And I just, I don't know, I, I feel like it's going to be a difficult thing to manage and I hope I'm wrong and I hope that they've figured it out. And I think maybe, you know, time will tell if, if that's true. You know, given that I ran into a missing dependencies and it wasn't just Discord, I forgot to mention that I've tried a couple other things that I normally install as well. And one of the dependencies for one of the other things was not there because it had been updated from a version five to a version six in the new release. And so, and the answer to that in Discord was, well, don't install dev files. And I said, well, but that's the only way to get this, this program is, is as a dev file. And he's like, well, it's not going to work. So, and uh, you know, and that, that's the type of thing that just makes it a system that I don't think I'd be able to use because of that. So anyway. Run away, run away. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've learned is don't use dev files on a Ubuntu-based system. <laughs> it was funny because I said, I'm trying to install something and I'm running into an issue where there's a missing dependency. And he said, okay, well, what's the dependency? And I told him and he searched and he said he couldn't find it. And he said, well, what's, what are you trying to install? And I said, it's a dev file from the website of the developer of the software that I'm trying to install. Oh, well, why would you do that? And I'm like, because that's how they distribute it. It's a dev file. You're supposed to download it and run it on an Ubuntu or Debian-based distro. So I don't know if that's just a lack of knowledge on their part that they don't think people do that or that they don't realize that people download deb files. I, 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 maybe they think that their repos and Flatpak, you know, but they, they also use Packstall. Packstall goes out to websites and downloads stuff. Like when it gets Discord, the binary or the dev file, it goes to Discord to do it. So it's the same thing I did manually. So for the advice to be don't install a dev file. Anyway, I, I don't know. I've spent enough time pondering <laughs> the weirdness of this. Step away from the terminal. Yeah, exactly. So I'm cool <laughs> leaving it there and just saying uh, it's not for me. And maybe that's right now. Maybe in a couple of years, it'll be the most amazing thing ever. And we'll be talking about it again. I don't know. But uh, anyway, similar distros to check out. Rolling distros include Arch and its many derivatives, as well as OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. There are others out there, but those are the two that I would recommend trying if someone's interested in, in a rolling release distro. Ratings. Ease of installation. For a new user, I'm going to say 8 out of 10, just because I think Calamari's is pretty straightforward at this point. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. There's no surprises. Hardware support, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community, and web. They've, you know, Like I said, I got great help from them. Ease of use, I'm going to say 6 out of 10, just because I really don't think it's all that easy to use, personally. But uh, you know, I hope I'm not being unfair there. Anyway, 
plays nice with others is 10 out of 10 because I only had one thing to test with and it worked perfectly fine. Stability was 8 out of 10 simply because I had issues with installing packages and finding dependencies and stuff like that. So I'm going to say that that's and also my sort of sneaking suspicion that stability is not going to be a 10 <laughs> in the long run. So anyway, I'm going to give this an overall rating of 7 out of 10. And for my final comments, while it's true that I had some issues with Rhino Linux, and it is doubtful that I will continue to use it, I'm, spoiler alert, I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to give the impression that it's without merit. This feels very much like a technical exercise that continues to explore some interesting new ideas. It's possible that these ideas turn out to be impactful beyond the distro itself, which is something I've seen time and time again. A smaller distro has the ability to try new things without you know, many risks. They don't have as many users and they can take risks and do different fun things. They might come up with some great new idea and then that makes its way up into mainstream distros. Uh, it happens all the time. I think that might be the case here with Paxstall. I mean, there are definitely some things lacking now. If, if you're going to say it's the AUR of something and it's not the AUR, that's probably why I'm having the reaction I'm having. But if they were to fill in some of those gaps, I could see it being really useful for finding those packages that otherwise you'd have to go dig around and look for. There are times when running native packages provides a better experience. So, you know, again, I think Paxstall really could be, uh, out of everything I used in here, I think Paxstall is probably like the most interesting. And I do think maybe that is going to go somewhere with more exposure. I'm not going to recommend this distro for a new or less experienced user, nor do I think it's appropriate for anything mission critical. However, if you would like to see what Ubuntu is like reimagined as a rolling release, I think it's worth taking a look. The developers seem like good people who are enjoying themselves, trying out new ideas, and they might just be onto something. I hope that they keep at it, and I look forward to checking back in sometime in the future. Now let's move on to new releases. New releases this month from August 10th to September 13th. WM Live 0 0.95.9-0, Ubuntu 22.04.3, all official flavors, Xero Linux 2023.08, OpenMen Reva 23.08 Rome, Tails 5.16.1, DevOne 5.0.0, Diamond R0 underscore 14 dot AU dot 2023, Absolute 2023.0816, Seduction 2023.1.0, Regatta 23.0.14, Artix 2023.0814, Bodhi 7.0.064 bit, Open Mamba 2023.0822, SmartOS 2023.0824, Kali 2023.3, Clear 39860, Magia 9, Emabuntus DE5 1.00, AntiX 23, Partus 23.0, LFS 12.0, and BLFS 12.0. That's Linux from scratch and beyond Linux from scratch. Arco Linux 23.09.03. Gnopix 23.9. That's still going. Wow. OSMC 2023.08 1. Hunix 17.0.4.5. PC Linux OS 2023.08. Armbian 23.8.1. Arch 2023.09.01, Xero Linux 2023.09, Manjaro 23.0, Xtix 
Live rays of 14.23.09.03. G part had 1.5.0-6. Light 6.6. Tails 5.17. Hyperbola 0.4.3. Smart OS 2023-0907. Fat Dog 64900. Manjaro 23.0.1. Walk Current-23.0909. Sys Linux OS 12.1, Tuxedo 2-2023-0911, Harden BSD 14.0 Stable, Sparky Linux 7.1, Univention 5.0-5, and another Clear Linux, I should have caught that, went from 39860, this one is uh, 39950. And that's it for this month. So let's move into feedback. Dale? Well, we've had quite a bit of uh, feedback this episode, so thank you for taking the time to uh, contact us. And we start off with an email from Biku. Hola, gentlemen. Some feedback regarding episode 45. Moss? BlendOS uses a fork of Crystal Linux's installer called Jade-GUI as its own installer. And he has a link in the uh, email here. It would have been better had Moss spent some more time with BlendOS as it would have allowed him to play with and test cross-platform apps, installs, and atomic updates, maybe in the future. By the way, BlendOS 3 was named after a popular Indian delicacy called Shobator. Chole Batur. I was, I was closer than usual. A link to the recipe video for Cooks Among Us, or Among You, is what he actually wrote. There's a YouTube link in the, uh, in the email in the show notes here. Eric, no distribution review is too long for Linux nerds, so don't worry about the length of your reviews. Nice and balanced review. Why on earth did PopOS went with the half-featured installer instead of Ubiquity or Calamaris is perplexing for sure. Another confusing thing is replacing Grub with System Dboot. Doesn't make sense to me. PopOS's future cosmic desktop won't be based on EFL, but on good old GTK. EFL is written in C and cosmic is a mix of Rust, C, and others. Dale, the raspy hyphen firmware issue is an actual bug that is caused by the inclusion of the raspy hyphen firmware package, which is absolutely not needed on an AMD64 system. And he has uh, some links to uh, bug reports from uh, Debian. Now the grub issue you mentioned is caused by the fact that they installed it on the root file system partition instead of the MBR of the hard drive. Calamaris has an option where you can select a location of Grub to be installed on. It can be a root partition, a system partition, or the MBR of the hard drive. For some reason, Peppermint OS installer installed it on the root partition instead of MBR in your case. You can install Grub on the MBR by running sudo grub hyphen install space slash dev slash sd and then you enter the number of your device. Then sudo update hyphen grub. 
If you want to install Grub auto partition, you can do that via the dash dash force option. An example, sudo grub hyphen install space dash dash force, then space forward slash dev slash sd and your drive uh, numeration and the partition number. sudo update hyphen grub. In the examples above, I used sdx and sdx1, but you'll have to replace them with the actual disk schema, which can easily be found out by running lsblk space dash f. And I think there's another one, block id, but I'm not sure what the command switch is for it, so just go with his suggestion. Or you can man page blk id. Moving on to his rest of his email. Ice, the SSB manager, and Kumo are different beasts. For some reason, after Bark Greaves' death, the new Peppermint OS team stopped its development and started Kumo. This is the reason why you didn't get what you saw in these uh, older screenshots. One wee correction. GUFW stands for GUI for Uncomplicated Firewall. I'll end this email with over 2,000 waterfall images, and he has the uh, link to it. And it's signed Baku. And here's my uh, reply to all this, because I didn't reply in the, in the email. That is an odd bug to have happened. I'm surprised this wasn't caught before the ISO was released. To me, it was kind of obvious. I didn't notice where Grub was installed until you pointed it out. I sometimes miss these little details. It makes sense why it was the issue. And I think I wanted to respond to something else, but um, I can't find it. So, anyways, we'll move on here. Thank you for your attention to detail in your emails and problem solving. I also enjoyed seeing the waterfall pictures. In nature, I love to see waterfalls and rock formations slash mountains. I think those were the best things to see. It's better than where I grew up with a lot of cornfields and flat ground, <laughs> even though we do have waterfalls around here. We had another email from Baku. This one dressed specifically to me and not to the regular email of the distrohoppersdigest.gmail.com. I forgot to mention this in my feedback email. If you are not able to run software-properties-gtk from the terminal to change the settings for unattended upgrades, it's most likely because software-properties-gtk package was not installed. And he has a uh, link to the uh, screenshot. And lastly, a distro suggestion for the past couple of weeks, I've been testing Garuda Sway Edition, and it's been more than pleasant experience for sure. Unlike most Garuda flavors, this one has minimal bling-bling, minimal default applications set, and some sane defaults. I highly encourage you to check it out. And he has a link to the uh, ISO download. And he signs Biku. My response, I replied to Baku via Telegram direct message. I have the software-properties-gtk package installed, and I still don't have the updates tab. This is an odd issue. It must be an older package that is being used in Cinnamon. I will consider reviewing Garuda Sway for the next episode. I haven't looked at Sway yet. It has been on my list of things to check out. I know some others in uh, Telegram have been using it. Maybe once you look at it, you'll be swayed to use it. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> you went there. Yes, he he went he went there with full gusto. I did. I did. And uh, because of the time difference between India and the East Coast of the United States, he actually replied me during the day today. And we're both perplexed because the only thing we can think about of this software packages or software properties GDK has got to be a version difference or something Cinnamon compiled and packaged themselves. So we have an email from Steve. Hello, Dale. Here's a little note from the Peppermint Dev on a few other things that you talked about on distro hoppers. He sent this to me a few weeks back when I was doing a live install on Peppermint 12. Steve, here is the email he is sharing from Graphic, the lead dev of Peppermint OS. I saw you have a stream coming up to install Peppermint. I just wanted to drop you a few notes so you do not get caught off guard. This concerns the PepHub and GNOME Store, FlatHub and the Snap Store. The way they work is by default, they are just web apps that open their own web pages. That is because on a fresh install, nothing is installed for these stores. So to install them, you can click the suggested button in the hub and do the following. Snaps, when you click on the Snap Package Platform button, that only installs the Snap Platform, meaning you can install Snaps via the terminal. If you want to install the local Snap Store, open the terminal and run sudo snap install snap hyphen store. At this point, you will need to click the uh, GNOME software store button in the suggested screen, as well as a way the uh, hub knows not to use the web store for the snap store. Flatpak. Clicking the Flatpak packages platform only installs just a Flatpak structure. Community feedback. We got mentioned no need to add the repos, so you still need to run in the terminal, and then the command sudo flatpak remote dash add and space dash dash if dash not dash exists, then flathub. Then it has the uh, https colon slash slash flathub.org slash repo slash flathub dot flatpak repo for the flathub repositories. Once you do that, the GNOME store will handle all the flathub stuff. That's why you will see the flathub button gone in the pep hub. Anyway, after installing all that, you need is to reboot the system for the changes that take effect. Final note on this stuff is you only just install the GNOME store and nothing else that only pulls packages from the Debian repos. Kumo. It has also had a lot of changes. With the ongoing popularity of PWAs, most of the Chromium-based browsers already support them. It comes down to whether or not the owner of the website or someone has created a PWA-supported application for that site. The question then becomes, what is the value of a SSB-native application? We started thinking, what value add can Kumo bring, and what were the issues we saw with ICE? ICE needed to have Firefox, Chromium, Vivaldi, or any other browser that the developers at the time added support for. The catch was that you had to use one of the supported browsers. If you did not want to use any of the supported browsers, then you could not get any value from ICE. In other words, it is a way of forcing a user to install a specific type of browser that they may or may not choose to use. The other problem we wanted to solve with ICE was backup 
and importing ICE apps to be shared or moved to another computer. The value that we think Kumo brings is versatility and it generally supply a SSB experience on most if not all websites. Upcoming changes that you will see with Kumo are we've moved away from adding launchers to the whisker menu or any other system menu etc. Kumo will now function more like an SSB launcher rather than a tool to create launchers meaning you can create your SSB and save its address to a local database and use the same window to launch the SSB. And as a side, that's the experience that I had and that is exactly how it worked and how I described it in my review. So moving on, Kubo uses Lua for its SSB browsing. It's very minimal, 6 megabyte, and is a great starting point to build upon for future iterations. We do have an ARM build coming out on July 15th. will be Debian ARM 64-bit only release. Also, Debian is often used for server-related functions with the Pemperament server builds. We configured SE Linux. Also, we added in Cockpit for Debian only, SSH Guard, as well as other options that will be useful for server needs. This is a big one that we are working on and will probably be the last of all the builds we release this year. The release date on these will be uh, determined. I know you will probably get asked the questions of what is the point of what we are doing. Peppermint today is a true, we do not just focus on new users, as that it truly unfair not to think about the veteran users in the community. It may not be perfect, but we try to strike that acceptable balance of a new and veteran user. What do we offer today? Number one, a 32-bit and 64-bit Debian system. 32-bit would be non-existent if we were still on Ubuntu. That's a value add. Number two, we offer a DevOn-based system. Many community members simply do not want system D and providing choice is a value add. We offer ARM architectures that never existed before in Peppermint. It's a value add for those users that need that technology. Number four, we will offer a server version of Peppermint pre-configured server ISOs to help users in the community to have a system that they can use for server needs. That's a value add. Number five, we ship nothing installed except for the most common firmware. It's not perfect, but it saves time for our users. That's a value add. And finally, number six, because we ship with no packages, the user does not lose time uninstalling a lot of packages they do not use. But we also make acceptable methods to easily install software. Again, value add. Oftentimes, folks will say, well, you can just do that with vanilla Debian, which is true, but Debian will not pre-configure or help you configure anything. So that's time loss in some ways. At the very least, we can show that we have added value where others do not. For that, I think Bark would be proud. Branding. We get questions as to why we drop the candy logo. Basically, we are simplifying the branding to just the text Peppermint OS, or PMOS for short. Peppermint should be built and branded by the choice of the user, not by what we push to them. It should absolutely be the choice of the user to decide what a system 
should look like. The less branding we bake into the system, the better it is for the user to make it their own. After all, that is what open source is about, community ownership. Nonetheless, these are just some notes. Please use them as you wish. Graphic. And I replied to uh, Steve, hi Steve, thank you very much. It answers some of the questions. So now we will move on to the announcements. Okay, announcements for chatting with us further. You may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Dale, where can we find you? I am Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord, and my email is Dale underscore CDL at PM dot me. Eric? I can be reached on most social media platforms and chat services under my full name, Eric Adams. For example, I'm on Mastodon, Discord, Telegram, Matrix, and so on. I can also be reached by email at eaonlinux at proton.me. Moss? And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at zyvola at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those people who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast. Joshua Lowe for our work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source and Libre software. We'll be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. <laughs>